Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. We're talking about motivated to serve. This is our lesson number two. We didn't get through it last week, so we will continue it today. But a quick review uh, for those of you that may have not have been here with us. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is the chapter that reveals to us the blessings and the curses. Okay. Verses 47, 48, and that's from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and a cheerful heart, even though... You had an abundance of everything. You will serve your enemies. The Lord will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and lack of everything. He will place an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Wow. We're talking about motive or motivation or being motivated to do something. That scripture is pretty powerful, wouldn't you say? Think about it. You talk about a motive or a motivation for us to serve God, to walk with God. It's pretty clear there. And what is motivation? It's a driving force behind our behavior, behind our actions. That which drives us to do the thing that we do. Our motives can be right and our motives can be wrong. If you recall when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if you're going to fast and you're going to pray and you're going to give to be seen of men, your motive's wrong. Remember he said that? James said, if you ask God to meet your need and you ask to consume it upon your lust, he said, you ask amiss or your motive is wrong. So our motive is our driving force behind the activity of our lives. Now, when it comes to serving God, the same thing is true. Our motive can be right and our motive can be wrong. If our motive for serving God is for the reason of legalism, if it's because of false guilt, if it's because of preeminence, meaning I want to show myself to be superior to other people, God's Word teaches us those motives are wrong. Our motives should never be any of that. There are right motives for serving God. And we talked about a couple of them. But I want you to turn with me as we continue our study to the book of Acts. We're going to put it up here on the screen. This is from Holman Christian Standard Bible as well. Because I, brought, I alluded to this, I brought it out when I gave you point one. Point one was to serve God, the motivation we should have to serve God is the fact that he suffered and died for us. It's because of the sacrifice. That should be the number one reason why everyone is motivated to live the life of a Christian, to do what we do, to attend church, to pray, to read our Bibles, to witness, to do whatever. Notice what these verses say. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the, what's that next word? 
ending the pains, not comforts, of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave my leave me in Abraham's bosom. Leave me where? In Hades. Or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Now, I want you to notice the word Hades there. It's number 86 in your Strong's Concordance, just to let you know in case you're interested. Okay? And I also want you to know that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is also the author of Acts. And there's something we need to know about Luke. Luke was the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. You realize that. And Luke got all his information together because he was very precise when it came to the, to the things that he taught. He was not only a doctor, he was a historian. And he went to all the eyewitnesses and got line upon line, precept upon precept. And before he ever penned anything at all in his gospel or in the book of Acts, he made certain of all the details. He was precise in everything that he wrote. And if you combine the two together, the book of Luke and also the book of Acts, you have 20% of the New Testament. Imagine that. Now, since he wrote Luke... And in Luke 16, verse 23, when he spoke about the rich man and Lazarus, well, before verse 23, he said, it came to pass that the beggar Lazarus died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Everybody say Abraham's bosom. Abraham's Place of comfort, right? But the rich man died, verse 23, and in Hades. 86, Strong's Concordance. Same word we just read in Acts chapter 2. So, being so precise, being a historian, being so intense, being a doctor, is like being a scientist or a biologist, Someone who gets all the facts and the details. For example, maybe someone's trying to come up with some kind of a cure. And so this person does what? All the research that is necessary to see to it that they get all the facts and put it all together. Isn't it something that when he talked about the resurrection of Jesus, he said he was brought out of Hades and not Abraham's bosom. Did you get that? Because you see, what people want you to hear today is, well, you know, Hades is like Sheol, and this is a compartment, of, and I agree to all that. But Luke knew the difference 
between Hades and Abraham's bosom. And when Christ was raised, he was raised from the pains of death. What am I saying this for? To let us know our number one motivation for serving him the way we do, whether you're playing a musical instrument, whether you're singing with your voice, if you're using the talent that God has given you, the gifts that God has given you, if you're making a decision as to where you're going to live. Remember what James says, go to, go to, you, go to now. In James chapter 4, verse 13, go to now you that say, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Remember that? You know what go to means? Man, listen carefully. Listen intensely what I'm saying to you. We ought not to do that. We ought to go to God and just say, Lord willing, I'll go here. Lord willing, I'll go there. Lord willing, I'll do this. Lord willing, I'll do that. Why? Because he owns us. Does he own you? He owns us. He bought and paid for us with his blood that he shed. He suffered a death you and I could never comprehend. He suffered the pain you and I could never comprehend. And if that doesn't motivate me to come to church on Sunday morning, to witness to my neighbor or someone at work, what more powerful motivation could we possibly have when you know what he did for you? Suffering in Hades for all of us. And God raised him from the pains of death. Number two was love. First John 4, 19. You see, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And how did he introduce us to his love? Christ died for us. And so we see we have a revelation of God's love for us. He loves us so much. When I hear someone say, God doesn't really love me. I can, if, if he has hair that he could pull out. <laughs> I'm sure he just like, really? Really? What more can I possibly do to prove to you that I love you with an endless, proven, unconditional love? I sent my son to die for you. My son suffered for you. What you, you were supposed to suffer for eternity, he took upon himself for a season. And I raised him from the dead for you. And guess what? I have numbered every hair on your head. There was a time when I read those verses, I thought, he just knows how many hairs I have on my head. No, 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 no. It's paint by number. <laughs> he knows every number. I think maybe 3,475 fell out of my head this morning. He knows every hair and he's numbered every hair. And someone says, but he doesn't love me. I love my children. I've never numbered their hairs on their head ever. He loves us so much. And so we love him because he first loved us. Can you see that? So I'm motivated to serve him. Why? Because the sacrifice he made for me and the love he demonstrated for me. And I, in turn, respond to his love and say, yes, I will gladly move from Youngstown to Tulsa to follow your plan for my life. Even though there's no part of me that wants it, no part of me that likes it, but I will give up everything 
And that was when the meals were running great. I was working six and seven days a week. I'm telling you, I was getting doubles all the time, making probably at that time more money than some college graduates were making. That's how it was in the mill. And he said, go. And when my supervisor said, why don't you just take a leave of absence and come back here and work for us? And I just said, I'll never be walking back into this place again. Why would I do that? Don't even know why I said it. I just said it because I believed it. And so it wasn't like I walked away something that was, from something that was dying. It was vibrant. It was alive. But I said, yes, Lord. And went all the way to Tulsa to do what he said to do and follow his plan. Because you see, when you love him, you want what he wants. Isn't that true? You want what he wants. The third reason as we continue our study is gratitude. Gratitude. Look in the book of Psalms, the 100th Psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with murmuring and complaining, pointing out all the difficulties that you have in your life. No, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God, and it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. See, gratitude is the quality or the condition of being thankful for the acts of kindness that someone has done for us. We are so grateful. We have such gratitude. Why? Because someone has blessed us. Someone has done something for us. Someone has assisted us or whatever. And we have these feelings of gratitude and thankfulness. Well, he is God. And he's the one that's done so much for us that some people, want, like, once again, like I said, they don't even recognize all that he has done. When God does something for me, then I'll maybe shout and I'll praise or I'll come to church or do whatever. Once again, we need to know what he's already done for us because he's done beyond anything we could imagine. But if we don't hear it, don't understand it and don't know it, we're not going to be grateful. There's a close connection between gratitude and memory. For us to be grateful on a consistent basis, we've got to remind ourselves of certain things. You know, it's easy for us to forget certain things. God never forgets. Except, thank God, he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west from us. And we thank God he doesn't remember them anymore. Amen. amen. That wasn't a hearty enough amen for that one. Amen. <laughs> amen. But Jesus, if you remember, remember when he instituted the Lord's Supper, what did he say? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Both the cup and the bread, Right? Why did he say that? Because when you remind yourself of my sacrifice and what I've done for you and you show forth my death till I come, then you'll have gratitude. Because that's what it's saying to you. You'd be lost forever. I'd be lost forever if it were not for what Jesus has done for us. And so he said, look, there's a connection between your memory and gratitude. If we don't daily remind ourselves on a consistent basis of what he's done for us, then 
we're not going to be as grateful as we need to be. If you recall, um, go back to, let's say, the book of Revelation, when the church, he told them, uh, you've lost your first love. How did he say to get it back? The very first word was, remember. Remember from whence you have fallen. Repent and repeat the first works over. In other words, remember. Remember when you first came to Christ. Remember when you first got saved. Remember the joy that was in your heart that was unspeakable and full of glory. Remind yourself of that. Remember how you were, how you acted, how you responded, how you were on fire to witness for Jesus and tell other people all these different things. And you were so quick to serve and do whatever you could to advance the kingdom of God upon the earth. I know along the way maybe you got, let's say, spent or maybe you got hurt or along the way something occurred and you got a little bit frustrated and all that. Go back and just remember. Go back and repeat after you repent. Because you see, God hasn't changed. We change. Look in the book of Psalms again. Psalm 78. This was an issue with the Israelites. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Forget means they stopped reminding themselves of something. They ignored the things that they once knew that he did for them. They forgot he brought them out of Egypt. They forgot all the signs and the wonders. They forgot. They didn't remind themselves on a consistent basis of all these mighty deeds, how he parted the Red Sea and brought water out of a rock and he brought manna down from heaven. See, they didn't remind themselves of all that because they didn't remind themselves they were less grateful. And it was easier for them to become vulnerable to all the temptations that they would face in life. And so he's basically saying, look, you've got to remember some things and remind yourself intentionally of some things. Look at verses 40 through 42, same chapter. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. See, they didn't remember that. It's so easy to get caught up in the circumstances of the moment that we forget all the wonderful things that God has done for us. You know what? Just by knowing he brought you and he brought me up out of the miry clay, just to know that he pulled us out of the realm of darkness and put us into the light of his kingdom should make us want to just shout the praises of Almighty God now throughout all eternity. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we're see. Praise God. We were deaf to the gospel, but now we hear it clearly. Jesus saves. Jesus heals. Jesus delivers. Jesus sets free. Jesus makes whole. He turned back the hand of the enemy. He has defeated him on our behalf. Right? And he got us the victory. And nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. So you see, it's at this point when you and I realize and recognize what he meant in Psalm 100. That Psalm 100 talks about serve the Lord with gladness. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. His gates with thanksgiving, his course with praise. Know that he made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the work of his hands. We owe it to him to be grateful, to be thankful, to remind ourselves of who he is, who we are. And what he's done to make us his sons and daughters. 
Man, I'll tell you what, that in itself should make us just shout the praises of God. We owe him our lives. And notice this, in our initial text, it said, Because you served not the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. And when that was penned, there were certain things that God had done for them. But since then, he's done a whole lot more for us. He sent his son who robed himself in flesh, who walked on this earth as the hypostatic union of deity with humanity. He lived a life no man lived. He spoke as no man spoke. He did as no man did. He died as no man died. He arose as no man arose from the dead. He went to the high court of heaven where we were held captive and he shed his blood that he took that blood he shed and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat and all the utensils of worship and cleansed the way for us to enter into the precious presence of the living God. He paved the road with his blood and said, come one, come all. Come on, enter in boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy, to find grace to help. And by the way, should you have an issue on earth, I'm going to give you the authority to use my name, the power of eternity to use my name to transact business for me on the earth. So whatever you come up against when you're proclaiming the gospel, just use my name and I'll see you through. Well, may we never forget the abundance of things that God has done for us in Christ. But you go back to the illustration of the Israelites. This is not in your notes, but in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, he tells them, after he tells the, the people to teach your children the ways of God, he says, now look, when you get into the promised land that I'm bringing you into, and when you enter into your city, you enter into your houses that you didn't build, and you experience the wells you didn't dig, and the trees, the olive trees you didn't plant, and you see the plenty that's there in that land. He said, now don't forget how you got there. Don't forget who brought you there. Don't forget me. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the same thing is true. He said the same thing over and over again. When you enter the city, the promised land, and you have houses you didn't build, and you've got olive yards, olive trees you didn't plant, and you've got wells you didn't dig, and you experience the blessings that I could possibly give up, uh, you in life, he said, don't forget, don't forget, remind yourself, okay? So then in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 24, you could read it through 27 or 8, somewhere around there. So they got to the promised land, and they soon forgot how they got there. He said, did you really think that you got yourself there? You really think that you have the power to get wealth on your own? Deuteronomy 8 says, I'm the one who gives you power to get wealth. And if it were not for me, you would have no power whatsoever to get wealth. Ask Nebuchadnezzar, who said, I did this all on my own. This is my kingdom. I put forth my hand and I've done all this. And look at all the works of my hand. And then he found himself as an animal in the wilderness. Until he came to his senses and realized, man, I didn't do anything. You hear me often say in my preaching and sometimes in praying, apart from him, we are nothing, have nothing, know nothing, can do nothing. And Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a man that was nothing, had nothing, knew nothing, could do nothing, right? Lost even his, his, uh, his consciousness and awareness of his surroundings and was like an animal living as an animal off the field. So without God, who are we? But with him, 
You want to shout this morning? Glory. You're not without him. You're not without him. In him you live. In him you move. In him you have your being. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And through Christ you can do all things through Christ who is the strength of your life. I know we're living in troubled times. I know we're living in challenging times. I mean, imagine being devastated there in Florida when all that they're going through. You know, when we were down there on vacation uh, one week a couple years ago, we wanted to, we were in Naples area. That's where uh, my niece got married. And we were going to go maybe to visit Fort Myers. And I said, oh, there's another time when we come back, we can visit Fort Myers Beach. Well, I saw it on TV and it's not there anymore. I lost my chance. Something could be so alive, something that could be so vibrant in a heartbeat. It's gone just like that. We should never take a thing for granted, should we? Just like that. Well, praise God. We should be so grateful for so many things. We shouldn't allow the enemy to set our focus or attention on the things that are bad, things that are wrong. But man, rise up once again in faith and start recognizing the fact that I need to be thankful to God more than I ever have in my life. If you see things getting worse, become more grateful and more grateful and more thankful and more thankful and thank him from the mountaintops for who he is and all that he's done for all of us. Number four, another motivation. These are motivating forces that we should have manifested in our lives that move us to serve God with our lives. And I'm talking about just doing what God wants us to do. And we'll see this here in the Number four, the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The judgment seat of Christ should be a powerful motivation for all of us to set aside whatever we need to set aside to serve God with our lives. Whether we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For only a few of us must appear. How many? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with rewards. Reward, rewarding us for the things that we've done for him. Remember he said, if you give a child a glass of water for in my name, you've done it for me. He sees it all. He knows it all. So here's the point. He has gifted every single one of us in one way or another. No matter who we are, we're without excuse. Every one of us has a gift. Every one of us has an ability. Every one of us has something that we could possibly do for the gospel and for the kingdom. Could you say amen to that? Amen. Doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small. You know, some people think, well, I can't do that because I can't preach. I can't preach either. I could never preach. But the Lord gifted me in that area and said, this is what I want you to do with your life. So guess what? I can take no credit. I think he does it on, on purpose. <laughs> he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He anoints someone who doesn't want to speak in front of people to speak in front of people to show that it's all about him and not about anyone else. Can you see that? He takes from you from your walk of life and makes you a prophet. An apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, etc. He gives you with singing and uh, maybe musical talents and abilities. Maybe you're someone that can uh, write real well and you have a gift in that area. The list goes on and on and on. There's something that you and I can do. So every single one of us will stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account 
of what we've done with the giftings of God in our lives. So we've got all kinds of talent out there in this world. Go to Hollywood, go to California, go to New York. People are gifted in many, many, many ways. But what are they doing with the gift that God has given them? Their gift came from God, whether they use it for him or against him, right? So what are they doing with it? They should be using it to advance the kingdom of God. They should be using it to glorify God upon the earth. As a matter of fact, they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus and please God by doing what he's called them to do. Look at John 8 and verse 29. Since we're all going to give an account of ourselves, we're going to have to answer the question, have I been a self-pleaser? Have I been a, a people-pleaser? Or have I been a God-pleaser when I live my life on the earth? And he said, he that has sent me is with me. The Father had not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Please him. We are a God-pleaser, not to be a self or people-pleaser. It's so easy to, be, uh, to please ourselves, isn't it? Three of you agree with me. <laughs> Is it easy to please yourself? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's even easy to please others, to be a people-pleaser. I want to please everybody. But to be a God-pleaser, a little bit more challenging. Jesus pleased God in all that he did. Well, that's how God wants us to be. See, here's what we have to remember. We only have to do what God knows we can do. That's all. He's not asking you to preach if you're not a preacher. He's not asking you to sing, and that's evident in me, because I don't sing. I may play guitar, but I don't sing. I wasn't gifted in that area. And I'll tell you what, I hear some voices that are out there, and I just go, my goodness, wouldn't it be nice to be able to sing like that? I long for the day in glory with a new body that's glorified. How about you? You know what I'm going to do on that day when we get there? Any attendees of Christian Assembly, come over here. I want to sing a song for you. <laughs> I want to play my guitar a little bit and sing a song for you. No, God is always, you know, asking us to do what he knows we can do. And when Moses even said, but I can't speak, he goes, who made your tongue? I made your tongue and I could make you speak. So just submit your will to me. See, Moses, I want you to be at the right place, at the right time, with the right heart, doing the right thing. That's all I want from you. That's it. I'm not asking you to do anything else. Be at the right place, at the right time, with the right heart, doing the right thing. That's all I want from you. And you know, that's the same thing for all of us. No matter how big, no matter how small. Let's just say that he inspires you after the service is over to walk out there and pick up that sheet of college um, students and maybe those that are in the military and just jot down a little note, maybe write out a scripture or something like that. Just want to let you know that you're being thought of here, your family church, Christian assembly, and you just inspired that person beyond anything you can imagine. Or someone that might be a shut-in. You do the same thing for that person. It sounds like a small thing, but it's not a small thing. It's a big thing just to help someone along the way. Number five, another reason, maybe not the number one reason, but a reason, a huge reason why we should be motivated to serve God. It's called godly reverential fear. Look in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and notice what it says. You see, there's too much to put in context here, but if you read the whole thing in context, 
there's so much to be said here. But anyhow, we'll just give you a bit of it. Those are the wrong scriptures. Brother, can you find chapter 12 and put that in there? If you read up until the point to verse 25, chapter 12, if you read these verses, what we discover is this. He's saying, look, there was a time when God spoke from Mount Sinai. You remember that? And he says, and the, and the mountains shook and quaked. Remember that? And it was a fearful thing to stand there and watch this take place. Verse 25. It was unimaginable. It was such an experience that Moses says everybody, you could say it this way, they were shaking in their boots and said, Moses, you talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. You talk to him. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. You ready for that one? It's going to happen. You know when, when what happens when he shakes the earth? When he comes with that trumpet sound? I'll tell you what, the graves are going to open. The dead in Christ are going to rise. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaking. As of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. What motivation. There's a voice that's going to come out of heaven that's going to shake the heavens and the earth. So we should be fearful in a godly way, a reverential way to serve God with our lives. It is easy to go with the flow of the world. It's easy to go with the flow of the flesh. It's easy to follow the flow of the devil because he'll take you down the path he wants you to be on. But when it comes to walking with God, no wonder he says you've got to constantly meet together with others of like precious faith so that you can encourage each other, inspire each other to do what? Walk in love and fear God and serve God with your life. Amen. Because he's going to speak. And when he speaks, it's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the graves are going to open. The dead will rise. That is before us. It's going to happen. And so we need to encourage each other along the way. And you might say, that's been said for 2,000 years. But it's going to happen in a flash. What he is saying is this. Keep it before the front of your mind. Remember they had frontlets that they carried scriptures in on the front of their mind? To, to keep reminding them of what great things God has done or what the scriptures teach or what the laws say. That's what he's saying to us. Remind yourself, remind yourself, go to church, remind yourself, hear the word, hear the word, hear the word. Don't walk away saying, I heard that before, I heard that before. Go walk away saying, I'm glad I heard it again, I'm glad I heard it again, I'm glad I heard it again, because I need to hear it again. And over, and over, and over, and over, and over. You know, sometimes you need to hear, by stripes I'm healed, by stripes I'm healed, by stripes I'm healed, by stripes I'm healed. Oh, I know, by stripes I'm healed, by stripes I'm healed. I'm going to get it someday, by stripes I'm healed, by stripes I'm healed. By your stripes I am healed. It's like the guy that did it probably a hundred thousand times, and finally he said, hundred thousand times, I said, with your stripes I'm healed, and boom, he got healed instantly. But he was diligent to keep it before the forefront of his mind. Why? Because this thing gets in the way. Does yours? 
Where's the battlefield? Right here. And we need to hear it over and over and over and over again. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse, no, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10. Fear is a powerful motivating force for us to serve God. Are you ready for it? Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, that would be somewhat of a motivation, wouldn't you say? Would you say that's a powerful motivation? I would say that's a powerful motivation. Anybody want to go to hell? Anybody want to spend your eternity in the lake of fire? No one should want to. I had a guy at the end of a funeral stand up there with such arrogance, you know, just laughing at me because I just preached a message about salvation at a funeral. And he stretched out his arms like that there and said, I don't fear God. I don't fear man. I don't fear anybody. Well, those words, you're going to eat the fruit of those words someday if you don't get saved. You realize that? You know, that's right. And look at Romans 3.18, because you see, when there's no fear of God in people, guess what? They serve themselves. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right here. The frontlet before their eyes to serve God. The, the decisions that we make, the choices that we make. Amen. He wants us to line up with him and not ourselves. Look at the uh, Hebrews that gives us warnings. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. These have been really misinterpreted. I don't know why, but they're pretty, pretty clear. I've been taught, just read what it says and believe what it says. For it is impossible, impossible for those who were once enlightened, number one. Two, tasted of the heavenly gift. Three, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. I've heard people say, he's not talking to Christians here. And I, I'm reading that, I'm going, hmm. Oh, they were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. Who's the heavenly gift? Jesus. They tasted of him. Made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Who's that? The third person of deity. They partook of him. They tasted the good word of God. That means they experienced it. And the powers of the world to come. Those five things. Five. That's the criteria. Those five things. If they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Is that a motivation to serve God? Anybody want to crucify Christ to yourself? Well, they were never saved, they say. Man, if, if, if you were once enlightened, tasted of Jesus, tasted the good word of God, we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost and the powers of the world to come and you're not saved? How do you get saved then? Wow. What criteria? They were saved. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and look at these verses that will motivate us to serve God and be consciously aware of our need to walk uprightly before the Lord. If we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much more sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. 
And they say, see, he wasn't saved. Uh, they were sanctified by the blood, but weren't saved. Wherefore, he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and is done despite the what? How come it's quiet? Despite the spirit of grace. For we know him that it said, vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. He's warning these Hebrew Christians that were tempted to go back to Judaism and they would have had to deny the blood of Christ to do so. They would deny the spirit of grace to do so. And he is warning them, there's no other way of salvation. Now, am I saying that they did it? No. But why a warning if it couldn't happen? Did you ever read the warning on a, on a carton of cigarettes or a pack of cigarettes? Warning. Tobacco could be dangerous. Smoking could be dangerous. Why, why is the warning there? It's too quiet here this morning. Why is the warning there? Because it's a possibility, right? So why the warning to these Hebrew Christians? Because it's a possibility that you could walk away. Now, you can't be lost, but you can lock, walk away. No one's going to take you out of God's hand, but you can jump out if you want to. See, there's the difference. I better move on. Lastly, you're an ambassador for Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. And this is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You know what an ambassador is? You're the, a representative of the highest order. You should be proud as a peacock. You are a representative of the highest order. And he died for all so that who live, so those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we, know him no we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We all have a ministry this morning. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are, what are we? What are we? representatives of the highest order for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Wouldn't you like to get a bullhorn, stand on the corner, and just shout it from the corner, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. Beloved, Every single one of us is an ambassador, and we're to live our lives as light and salt. We're the light in the world. We're the salt of the earth, and God wants to keep us here so that we can preserve things, so we can proclaim the truth and bring as many as we can into the kingdom.
You know what? We're living in the last of the last days. There is nothing more important. It doesn't matter to me if someone never gets healed, delivered, or set free from anything, as long as you get saved. All that is other is temporary. Salvation is eternal. Let's all stand together before the Lord.